2: editor of the Times Red Box, which amongst my many jobs involves getting up very early and writing a morning email, which if you're not signed up to, uh, you will be before you leave the building. Uh, I can assure you, welcome to the news building. Uh, extraordinary views over London. Uh, so I hope you've been enjoying those and the drinks and the uh, and the nibbles. Um, tonight's event uh, sort of came about because shortly after the Brexit vote on June the 23rd, we had a debate here where we talked about Britain after Brexit and what that might mean. And actually, it was very domestic-focused. It was questions like, what sort of Prime Minister is Theresa May going to be? How will she operate? What's the Cabinet going to be like? And actually, the, the big thing we didn't really touch on was the flip side to that coin, is what does Brexit mean internationally, Britain's place on the uh, world stage? So we thought that we would assemble a stellar panel of people who know far more about this subject than I could ever possibly imagine, and uh, just try and have a look, uh, look into those issues of Britain's place in the world post-Brexit. And of course, the uh, surprising role of uh, Boris Johnson being the Foreign Secretary, uh, leading our, our way on the uh, global stage. So um, I'm delighted to uh, welcome our uh, panel, um, if I start at the end is uh, Deborah Haynes is the uh, Defence Editor of The Times, uh, David Lord Owen is a former Foreign Secretary in the uh, Callaghan government, of course was one of the Gang of Four we've had at the SDP, he now sits in the House of Lords as an independent Social Democrat, is mm-hmm. that right? Uh, and has written uh, the author of several books, uh, including one that you can buy tonight, uh, The Cabinet's Finest Hour, which I I think we'll touch on later on, because it's interesting about the role that uh, foreign secretaries uh, play. Aminka Helic, Baroness Helic, is a former special advisor to William Hague, worked for him for 10 years, including four uh, in the uh, Foreign Office when he was Foreign Secretary. And Sir Richard Shurif was NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander for Europe uh, until 2014, and since then has written a novel uh, war with Russia, uh, in which he cast, uh, well, I described a highly critical eye over the ability of politicians and military leaders to respond to the threat from Moscow. Is that a fair...? You've got it in one. Oh, I've got it in one. There we are. It is, it is technically fiction, although uh, there are lots of parallels that somebody might draw with the current uh, political and military scene, I think it's fair to say. So uh, let's kick off... Uh, We'll do sort of forty-five minutes of the panel discussion. We'll take questions from the audience. If you, if tweeting is your thing, you can use the hashtag uh, Red Box Podcast. No, Redbox Debate. Redbox Debate. And we are also recording this as a podcast, which will be uh, released in the next uh, week or so. Uh, so if we could keep swearing to the bare minimum, that would be uh, that would be terrific. Um, uh, so let's start with uh, you, Armin. Let's let's just talk about the Brexit debates. Uh, and the results and um, what what impact do you think that has on Britain's uh, Place in the world Which well, I know is a, <laughs> quite a broad question to It's start, a very broad question. So I
3: think it may be too early to say what impact it's going to have it depends on first and foremost how we disentangle ourselves uh, from the EU that's going to be a long process or short process. We will see we will, we're going to see uh, secondly uh, those who, I was on the Remainer's side by the way, I declare that, uh, those who were on, on, a, on a sort of Brexit side, um, I hope that once the country is out of the EU structures will still feel what the Foreign Secretary has said uh, in one of his uh, pronouncements recently, uh, will still feel European. And thirdly, that we're going to be a country that is not going to be afraid of uh, its internationalism. It's not going to withdraw and become an isolationist country. That we are not going to see strategic st- shrinkage. And that we are going to be a country that is confident, uh, able to find its place in the world, able to forge the alliances, and able to still play an active and activist part within the uh, on the continent of Europe, where I think. Uh, Particularly, one thing that I had uh, thought quite long about during the Brexit campaign is uh, I was born in Bosnia and I have seen the the failures of the European Union, however, uh, there is one uh, quality that European Union has brought to the the, uh, continent and that is stability. We haven't had a European war, minus the Balkans, for 70 years and I think that's something well worth preserving. And there is only one country, if you don't live on this beautiful island, there's only one country that in the First World War was on the right side, that in the Second World War was on the right side, that in the Cold War was on the right side, and that country has a particular moral standing within the European context. There are no confusions like over Germany, over Italy, over or, or France, over Austria, any other country has kind of switched sides throughout the century. Britain has always been in one place on the right side, and I genuinely hope that whatever happens in the years to come, that we are going to be a country that is actually capable of engaging with European Union, of engaging with our European uh, partners and allies, that is going to be open to the enlargement of European Union, which we will not have a say into, but we will be able to help countries that want to join, help countries in, in terms of mentoring and, and building their institutions, the democracy, So I. I hope that Britain is going to be able to, with all its resourcefulness, maturity, uh, strength of democracy, strength of institutions, and everything that Britain has, I mean, if you were to come to planet, came from planet Mars today on on planet Earth, and someone said you have just landed in the country where English is the, the language that they speak, and so does the rest of the world, successfully or less so, they're members of the UN Security Council, they're members of G7 or G8, they're members of NATO, they're members of Commonwealth, this country is number four in the, one of the largest economies, it's, this country has it all going for it. So let's hope that we can cleverly and confidently use all of that to forge our place in the world and not to in any way turn inwards because I think this is a unique country, if you didn't have it you would want to invent it. So why not have that country really spread its wings and I say this as a remainder. I'm really. I was unhappy when I heard that we were on a Brexit path, but we are where we are, and I think if anyone has confidence and strength, it's the British people, and I do hope that we can find the unity at home to take that task that, we have, that the people have set to the government and, and really uh, make the best of where we are, because we have nothing that is, that is stopping us from, from doing that.
2: David Owen, do you worry about a concern that post Brexit we sort of turn into ourselves or in some way end up diminished on the world stage?
4: Not one little bit. The great reason for doing it is to recover Britain's position and to be important in quite a number of areas of world affairs and not have to submit your foreign policy to 27 other people who have mainly come together only to discuss the press release. Uh, so I, I, I personally think this is a absolutely inconceivable that we would be anything other than what we are, which is Europeans. And fortunately, I think there is an immediate task, which is to demonstrate to the world, and particularly to the Americans, that NATO is of crucial importance, and to ch- rise to the challenge that President Obama Has set us openly saying that we're freeloading, which is true, on NATO, and that it is a disgrace that America paid 72% of NATO costs. And Britain now must not only hold to our commitment of 2000, uh, in Newport, but um, of 2% on NATO, but we must, as our economy recovers, which I think it will, start to spend more money. You know, and I was Foreign Secretary, when I was Minister for the Navy, we had 220 ships, that was in 1968. Now look what our Navy is, and look what we've all done. We've all of us done it, and it's, I'm responsible like others. We took a peace dividend, so-called, on the collapse of the Berlin Wall. It was undeserved. But, you know, Britain all through the 50s and 60s and 70s spent a very substantial percentage of, on defence. And we, did, we knew we had to do it. We've got to learn that we have to do it again. And we have to do it in a sensible way. But those were 9% of GDP going into
2: defence. Now, Do you, do you think that, that means we've got to sort of buy our influence then?
4: No, it's no buying at all. It's to demonstrate to the Americans that just as they made the decision in 1946, when Truman was already bringing the boys home, and he realized that they had to stay, which was one of the great strategic and courageous decisions. But it's not in, uh, an, an act of gift. America have to understand that by staying and helping to create NATO and keeping their troops, they have prevented war. I don't agree at all that the EU has prevented war, NATO prevented war, the EU did one very important thing and will go on doing it, which was expanding the friendship between Germany and France to an extent where it is almost inconceivable that those two will go to war. But our problem with war is not between Germany and France, our problem with war is an imbalance and we've seen it in the Ukraine. We were very nearly pitched into a European war in Ukraine, and a lot of it stemmed from very mistaken EU foreign policy and also, to some extent, NATO foreign policy in terms of our relationships with Russia. So there's a big role for Britain immediately. And I think that will be seen and demonstrated. And it looks as if the government is going to, despite its financial difficulties, stand by its commitments to NATO and slowly build it back up.
2: Richard, is it the EU or NATO which has kept peace in Europe for so long? I think it's
5: NATO uh, that certainly has maintained, maintained, the, maintained peace during the Cold War. Uh, and it's NATO that's going to have to maintain peace in in future but it's got to get its deterrent uh it's got to get its deterrence right and it's got to match match its words with actions but i would also say that i can think of one corner of europe which is by and large out of the headlines at the moment where the eu has had a significant effect and that is the western balkans the fact that serbia and kosovo have signed a comprehensive normalization agreement was entirely due to Cathy Ashton and, and EU diplomacy that, that, that forced the issue, that said, listen, if you want to join the European Union, you've got to sign a deal together. Uh, and that's a, that's, that, that is an example of that EU stability blanket that actually works pretty closely with NATO and should work in, even increasingly closely with NATO in years to come because security and defence in Europe is, is, is multifaceted um, and particularly in the face of the what you might call the hybrid asymmetric uh, threat which Russia demonstrated so effectively in Crimea. The manipulation of minorities, the use of clever, sophisticated Kremlin TV, um, cyber special forces. Um, That's somewhere, that's an area where the EU's soft power can have a a fairly major effect in building civic society, (laughs) in spending money in in, in cities like Narva, for example, an Estonian city on the Russian-Estonian uh, border which, is, which has significant um, social deprivation and, and, and financial and economic problems uh, as well as information operations and the like. So I think fundamentally it's NATO but don't rule out the importance of the European Union as well.
2: And, and for, from your point of view what difference does Britain being in one but not the other have on the ability of those well, to work together? I,
5: I, by being in both we bridged the gap yeah by being in both we were able to um we were we were we were certainly a conduit uh for uh i would say we also a, a, a voice of common sense in the european union if i may say that and the, the one of the concerns i've got now is that by the, i mean the one thing that was stopping ridiculous talk about european union armies and the like which, frankly, pigs will fly before there's an EU army, unless there is a sovereign European superstate, which I don't think looks likely immediately. But such organisations, such, such proposals, for example, as establishing a, a standalone EU operational headquarters, it was the it was Britain which, by and large, stop that even getting that. off the ground. Yeah. that was the voice of common sense and, and 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 pushing NATO rather than duplicating unnecessary EU EU EU, EU duplicate headquarters. Take Britain out of that equation, you're going to you're going to find those sort of measures will go through, and ultimately my fear is that that will that will um, that will divert resources from NATO, and that NATO NATO will
2: be rather poorer as a result of that. David, no, just to bring you in. Do you do you see any prospect of post Brexit? And obviously, there's all the money that's been spent a million times over that currently goes to the EU. But do you think there's any prospect of increased the sort of increased spending in defence spending that David was talking about?
6: Um, well, I think um, what we're seeing, which is quite, quite interesting, is that obviously Brexit means Brexit. Apparently. Um, <laughs>
2: That's the first time. <laughs> we'll count them, during the evening. <laughs>
6: um, and for, for the UK, um, there's, a, there's a real um, uh, desire to signal to the rest of Europe that we are still very much part of Europe, part of the defence of Europe. And um, I think it was an Estonian defence minister last week um, was quoted saying that he, he got a sense that Britain was wanting to show greater commitment to NATO um, as part of this signaling that it, you know, it might have left, it might be leaving the EU, but it was still very much wanting to spend money and protect um, European security. So you're seeing, for example, um, as part of measures to counter Russian aggression, um, Britain initially was going to send 500 troops to Estonia, and now that number's gone up to 800. I mean, it, it all is very symbolic and frankly meaningless if Russia were to kind of call our bluff. Um, but still, it's a signal that shows that Britain wants to let Europe know that it's still there. Um, my worry is that we, you know, the government talks tough, but doesn't actually put commit the real resource that is necessary um, to defend, to, to maintain defense. I mean, everyone is fixated on this 2%, this NATO minimum 2% of, of GDP. I mean, that is the NATO minimum. That figure is totally arbitrary. Um, it was drawn up by NATO um, countries uh, for, for smaller nations, you know, who couldn't really afford the big bucks. Um, but actually, you know, we, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we we're spending you know, 5% of our GDP um, on defence. Now, the fact is, it, it's more even 2%. The 2% is bogus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's based on um, if, if clever accounting, smoke and mirrors, b- bunging in a whole load of other stuff, which we never used to count. Um, so, if you took, strip that all away and just looked at pure defence, it's below 2%, and that's just not enough.
2: So, let's, uh, did you want to? I just I want on to that? say,
3: I, I, I do not think I would agree with my two. Um, co-host guests. I don't think actually, NATO was not created to stop a war between Slovakia, well well, Slovakia at the time, Czechoslovakia, but between uh, France and Britain, or France and Germany. NATO was created in order to provide buffer and, and protection from the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And as Lord Owen has just said, European Union has provided that balance between Germany and France. And then just if we go hundred years back, these two countries were at war in the First World War and the Second World War. And you know it was only possible, for example, just to give a small example, Czechoslovakia after the Cold War was only it was only possible for that country to go uh, into separate states, like Slovakia and Czech Republic, because people in both countries felt safe because they were in the union that provided linkage between these two states because there were no borders so I, I, I cannot accept the premise that somehow uh, this creation and no it hasn't been the most successful no it hasn't been the mo- you know, least bureaucratic no it hasn't been most efficient no it, there, there, there are millions of things you could say against the EU but there is one thing that I would argue you can credit European Union for providing the space for both developing institutions in new—I mean, think about all the new um, soviet uh, former Warsaw Pact states like Bulgaria and Romania, and you know uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland. These countries could not have been accepted, and so- suddenly they're members of NATO, and their institutions are developed, their democracies fine, their social—you uh, know, you know civil society is developed. That has all been process, they had to go through the process in order to join the EU. Whether they have come at the other end as the, you know, countries and democracies as mature as the United Kingdom is, uh, the time will tell. But I would argue that we cannot, and even though I, I, I started in politics as a Eurosceptic and I'm not much more excited about Europe today, but you cannot deny the fact that it has a major pull, for example, for the Balkan states. The only thing that they want to be they want to eventually join the eu because that ensures prosperity and jobs and not necessarily jobs in in, in britain just for the for the record but it, it provides for the future of their children and they want to be members of that some have second thoughts and doubts about whether they want to be members of nato but that is but that is a very good starting point
2: with the risk of uh re-running the arguments forward against mm-hmm. us still being in the eu let's let's forwards and think about Boris Johnson's the Foreign Secretary. He's got this, you know, big uh, job in his in but he's sort of sharing that in-tray with Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary, and uh, David Davis, the Brexit Secretary as we'll call it. Um, let's start with you, David Owen, because you were uh, Foreign Secretary in the uh, Callaghan government, but what, what sort of stage do you think the Foreign Office is in to be able to deal with these huge questions uh, both in terms of the immediate process of leaving the EU, but also the way it projects itself and deals with the, the rest of the world?
4: Well, there's been a very progressive uh, diminution in the role of the Foreign Office ever since uh, Peter Carrington resigned. I mean, that's the reality. It was a very powerful department. It had, uh, when I was there, aid and overseas development was linked to the foreign secretary. It was a separate person, but you were in charge of it. And so you could look at foreign policy on a much bigger, broader You You actually had resources which you could influence. And then the other question, of course, is the growing power of number 10. And that started under Margaret Thatcher, but it reached its nadir in terms of collective government under Blair, so by 2001 we had President Blair and we had all the apparatus of a presidential office in number 10. Well, we know it was a complete and absolute disaster over Iraq and Afghanistan, but it carried on through and we then had a pretty bad situation in Libya. Now there is signs that we're restoring cabinet government. Uh, if, that is, if that is the net effect, then I think it would be a tremendous advantage. I think we have suffered deeply from having two prime ministers who have never been in office before, Blair and Cameron, and it is a terrible deficit. And I think that as it turns out, I mean, I'm no conservative, but the way they managed to handle the extraordinary situation where Cameron tells everybody he's going to stay and then walks out, it could have been very disastrous. I mean, I was a Brexiteer, but I wanted Cameron to stay because I knew we were going to go through a very dangerous period. Well, fortunately, that whole election took place very quickly, and you've got a very experienced Prime Minister. I mean, you, are, you can't be Home Secretary for six years without a great deal of experience. She hasn't got a lot on foreign policy, but she's a rooted, deep uh, politician, and that seems to me a great strength. And so Boris, who would not have been, in my view, ready to be Prime Minister. I think he is ready to be Foreign Secretary. But
2: I think that... What do you, you see that role as being, though?
4: Well, I think that uh, he's, some of his attributes are going to be very necessary. A certain buoyancy, you know, <laughs> uh, a certain optimism uh, is actually very important now. He's also clever, and he, he will, he'll learn, and you're seeing it already and uh, now. I don't know what the outcome will be, but we can judge him at some later date whether he is fit to be prime minister against the background of ministerial experience. And I think he'll—I I think he'll be good. But I don't know. You can't be absolutely sure. It's not an easy role at the moment with all the negotiations going. Um, but I think he's seeming to work rather well with the. New Minister for Overseas Development who has actually got money in a biggish budget, and I think the world, if they can harmonize their foreign policy across that, that would be a big advantage so overall i'm I'm fairly happy about the structures and the management uh, of uh, Theresa may i don 't know her at all, but i she certainly has my full support we this is a moment when we need to rally there's a government there until uh 2020 we've got fixed term parliaments there's not going to be an election unless the house of commons gets collective craziness and tries to think it can <laughs> overturn the referendum it's always very difficult for mps you know referendums are not like that them, perfectly reasonably because they effectively uh, have surrendered their rights in this area it's not and now some of them are trying to sort of wish that there hadn't been a referendum well we might all wish that but uh, this issue of Europe has bedeviled British politics. We had a referendum in '75 because Labour was split from STEM to CERN. We had a referendum in 2016 because the Tory party is split from STEM to CERN. Parliament couldn't handle it. They had to hand it to us. We've now handled it. I think the British electorate have once again shown they're damn sound more sensible than their politicians. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, Aminka, you've been in the Foreign Office more recently. You were there from 2010 to 2014. That's that's correct. Um, what was your experience of was it was foreign policy all being run from Downing Street? No, the, the, one from Number 10.
3: No, 10? no, that wasn't my experience. But then I was lucky to be working for William Hague, who had a fantastic relationship with the Prime Minister. And uh, and uh, we, we we came in, we set up a National Security Council, and that has opened a, a possibility of leaving the sofa government of the Blair years. And having everyone who needs to be around that table, uh, both breathe the prime minister and make, uh, you know, help make the decisions on some very, very important issues. Uh, so I, I, I think while there may have been moments when uh, the, the, the sort of decision-making process
0: was... Uh, Say hello to a new era of mental health care. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
1: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk
3: Sort of made in a less orthodox way without sharing a... (laughs) That's uh, that's code for something.
2: What does that that (laughs) When you
3: don't follow a process (laughs) and you don't consult your civil servants and you don't have the input of people that you need to to, to have from everyone from MOD, from intelligence services, from your uh, foreign secretary, etc. then it's, it's a bit difficult. But I think the important thing is, and I hope that our foreign secretary will have the same relationship with, the, uh, with number 10 that William had, uh, is to, we are all working uh, for one and only master, and that's the United Kingdom. So there is, it, it's a bit sort of odd to even think that there can be or there should be allowed to be sort of some sort of gap uh, between the Foreign Office and, and, and Number 10, we the expectation is that everyone works together, the expectation is that everyone delivers for Britain, and I hope that he's going to be able to forge that relationship. And it is a matter of political art, and I, I'm sure that he's a fantastic artist in that field, and, and I'm excited to see him, how he does that.
2: It's, he's, Boris Johnson is certainly exciting. Um, just <laughs> One of the criticisms of the Foreign Office is that it institutionally was so pro-EU, even in the run-up to the referendum. Do you think it's institutionally equipped to seize the uh, possibilities and the opportunities that Brexit
3: Foreign office will do, and, and, and the civil servants, and they're fantastic diplomats in the foreign office, they will do what their political masters tell them to do, and they will deliver. And for that, they have to, know, they have, to have a foreign secretary who knows how to organize this machine, and how to. he has to have direction and strategy, knows what he's about, what the country is about, and say, I'm go- traveling in that direction, and you, my diplomats, 15,000 of you, are going to help me deliver this for the country. And once they have been issued, they're loyal, very clever, well-trained people who can deliver. But what they need, they need leadership. They need And they need, and a they need someone who is going to tell them, we're traveling in this direction. Please, let's travel together. And I don't think that there is some sort of c- c- hidden uh, Europhile agenda in Foreign Office to uh, undermine. You know, they serve the country. They don't serve their personal ideological, if they have, uh, interests.
2: Richard, just given uh, what you've said both in your book and subsequently the idea, you know, you want maybe fewer people actually making decisions. What's your take with your military background of having three people essentially deliver, you know, each with different priorities trying to deliver on the the, uh, outcome of the referendum?
5: Well, military people tend to like simple command and control, (laughs) Um, clarity of of command, unity of purpose, uh, and we like somebody to be in charge because when things get really difficult, uh, it's much easier if there's one individual we know who's boss. So on the face of it, the command and control arrangements probably wouldn't get a high mark at the staff college. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, as we live in, we don't live in a perfect world, um, I'm sure
2: they can be, be made to work. And it is actually, is it just it's Theresa mate who's in charge? That's the, well, you know, I, if he's got three I, people I, on board I, to- I, I think you have to make, I I. mean, I, I would
5: make that assumption. Yes, but what I've observed, I think she probably is in charge. Yeah. Yes,
2: um, absolutely. What the other three get up to is, is
5: but but I think it. Order. But it does does you know it does highlight a point. I you know clearly, um, I'm 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 a military individual by background, uh, and as you probably read in the book, I'm certainly no diplomat. But what you <laughs> uh, what what I've observed is that. There, I mean, clearly the Foreign Office is there to implement and execute foreign policy on behalf of the mm-hmm. government. Um, and that is going to require strategic leadership of a very high order at a time of immense complication and complexity where there are probably no right answers, just limited choices between the least wrong answer.
2: At one point in your book, you talk about the Prime Minister being increasingly irrelevant on the international scene. Do you think that? how How can theresa may make herself relevant on the international scene when actually almost all of her premiership is going to be defined by and consumed by this process of negotiating essentially in in lots yeah. of stuffy rooms in brussels
5: yeah i mean that, that that was a comment which was very much reflects the view of others as others saw us and I as a nato officer was 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 was, was not was able to see and and, and in my interaction within the Alliance as a whole, was able to see that growing sense of disappointment, I think, that somehow Britain was not stepping up to the mark as our friends and allies, particularly in Europe, expected Britain to do so. How does Britain respond or how how, how should we respond? Well, I absolutely buy the the opportunity to, to go global, to reinforce success, in terms of hard and soft power. So and that's about not only, I absolutely applaud the notion of increased military spending because that's part of it, but I also think the, that investing in our, investing in the Foreign Office, investing in our diplomats, mm-hmm. investing in the World Service, uh, investing in the British Council, these are, these are, these are hugely respected um, capabilities that we have as a country around the world. And I think there's a, a general expectation and a hope Amongst our friends, that they'll see that. But don't underestimate the, the the huge sense of disbelief, almost, and disappointment from many many of our our friends in Europe. I, mean, I was in Poland and Latvia last week, and uh, conversations along the lines of "We've always respected Britain as a as a stable, sensible country. What on earth are you getting up to?" Um, you know, there's a real concern a real concern that. Brexit means that instead of leaning into NATO more, does this mean Britain will not lean into NATO? Well, I think we saw, the, you know, and, and Deborah raised that point, about the, the increased presence in Estonia. But, but this is the opportunity to really get on the front foot. And, and
2: having made that decision to vote to leave, there's a job to, do, to be done to reassure the rest of the world that it's not leaving uh, out those... Uh, absolutely. And uh, there's a real concern.
5: Uh, does, this, does this mean the breakup of the UK? Scotland. That's a whole
2: other evening, I right, think. Which
5: is another <laughs> evening. Yeah. And, you, and, and yeah, there are a few yeah. really yeah. difficult shows to navigate past. Yeah. But it is that, does this mean Britain is retreating behind its island walls
2: uh, and, and we're not going to see you on the international scene? David, let's just be... Um, uh, just like to ask you about Sir Michael Fallon, as we now have to, uh, now have to call him. He was, inc- he was one of the few people who stayed in the same cabinet job as he had under uh, David Cameron. He was incredibly active under David Cameron was quite often sent out to defend whatever issue the government um, was having trouble with at the time. What's, what's he up to at the moment? What's your sense of what, where does Michael Fallon fit in? Does he fit in? Is he just keeping his head down in the MOD? What's his in all this? No, I think
4: he, he's become very knowledgeable, and I think that now that we're going to give a bigger emphasis to NATO, he will be able to be a wise and sound voice in NATO Council, so I, I think that's fine. But he will not determine the big issue, which is how do we learn from the mistakes that we've made in handling Russia. Mm. This is a fundamental thing. I mean, you, you know, we've just got to remember, they annexed Crimea without the slightest peep from any of us. We gave up the Budapest Memorandum, in which we, Britain, America, and uh, Russia and France at a separate ceremony, guaranteed effectively, without going as far as a NATO uh, Article 5 commitment, that we would ensure that the Ukrainians, giving their nuclear weapons and their missiles and the whole of their capacity to Russia, we would respect their borders. We did nothing. We ignored all the advice of all the Russian experts for a decade or more in the way that we pushed NATO right up to the boundaries. A deal was done with Gorbachev in the Berlin Wall. It was quite a simple one. It was, we accepted, George Bush Senior, a very able president in my view, and uh, uh, Cole, accepted that we would not push NATO right up to the boundaries of Russia. It's exactly what we did. We were warned by the best American diplomat, the person more responsible for the success of the Cold War and its strategy of containment, George Kennan, not to do this. He said it was a mad decision. It was taken by the Senate in a weak period of American foreign policy. And we have to learn from that. And we have to now reach an accommodation. Uh, We share this Euro-Asian space with Russia as a powerful force. It's nowhere near the strength of the Soviet Union, so it's not a Cold War. Some people call it a hot peace. It's dangerous, though. There's a lot of dry tinder around, and that's where Boris should be putting a lot of thought and care as to how to restore a sensible policy and learn from our mistakes. It could have been a success story, Russia. We didn't do enough to help uh, Yeltsin, in my view. We have made some very big strategic errors. If I could just take up one of the issues of the smaller states in Europe, just remember that Czechoslovakia split against the opposition of NATO and against the opposition of the European Union. It was actually a very successful policy. But these smaller countries will look for leadership, and Britain has to provide it, and it's a great deal of intellectual and strategic thinking that has to be restored to British policy. We have, all of us, got wrong. Ukraine. And as far as British foreign policy, where were we? Uh, I gather that they discovered that um, uh, Angela Merkel and Holland were off into Minsk uh, when they were airborne. Actually that diplomacy has been a failure. We have got a very serious uh, conflict running on in East Ukraine. This is dangerous. This can flare again. So, this is where Boris must put a good deal of intellectual and uh, time and energy to developing a better strategy than the one we've had for the last 15 years.
2: Deborah, what's your take on, on Michael Fallon and what, he's, what role he's playing? So, say. Sir Michael. Sir Michael.
6: Sir Michael, yeah, <laughs> Sir Michael, yeah of course. Sorry. Um, well, I, actually, it's quite interesting because he, he obviously thought that he was out. Um, you know, when, after, you know, after the referendum. Well, yeah, the knighthood, I the knighthood
2: is, the, is the, you know, that's the carriage <laughs> clock. And, yeah, uh, no, yeah. But
6: yeah, I think also, I think he also thought he was going to leave after the election. Um, because he was, remember, he was one that came out and, and made that really like cutting remark about Ed Miliband and his betrayal, how he betrayed his brother. He would, he would stabbed Britain in, the back, he stab was written yeah, in yeah. the back with the nuclear deterrent or something like that. <laughs> and it was like really, it was brutal, he was like this sort of like attack dog. Um, and, and then he stayed on. So we were all, you know, people thought that he was going. And then he's there still. You're like, oh, right. Um, and then with Brexit um again with the, the whole t- crazy change with the with what happened in um in the government I was like uh, I was calling up the spads oh bye um <laughs> <laughs> and then oh you're still here wait oh really pleased but apparently he had some summer part here's some party with journalists um I was on maternity leave, so I wasn't there um but um he you know had a few drinks and sort of let his hair down thinking probably that he was leaving um and then he didn't he stayed and I think it's actually a, is interesting he's a i think he is a, amongst the cabinet ministers suddenly the defense minister is a really senior person and i do believe that he has got the count, you know he he is he is massively trusted um, by by the you know by Philip Hammond by Theresa May by the people who are you know in May well, in charge and so he's a he's a very emboldened Um, figure now and um, you know when he talks people he talk he's he's the voice he's one of our big voices um and you know obviously boris johnson is kind of a joke figure um on the international stage surely not um but 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 michael (laughs) fallon isn't and he is that voice of you know you kind of hear him talking and he sounds quite reasonable and solid and stable and he's been there for a you know considering the record of defence secretaries over the last decade, he's actually been there a pretty long time now, coming on, coming on to. Um, so I think he is an important figure. He will be an important figure.
4: Modern Dennis Healy. Dennis Healy was a very good defence secretary.
2: It takes time to be... I didn't think he was a good defence, defence. secretary. he has been there a while. <laughs> he's, just, he's, he's survived as a defence secretary. Um, let's, uh, one of the things I to. and there is a risk with the foreign policy debate, we try to solve every problem around <laughs> the world in uh, an hour and a half, but Um, One of the things that struck me was the uh, issue of Syria and W had a uh, terrific story on the front of the Times yesterday about how Russia is basically going to try and use the distraction of the US elections in particular to uh, launch extraordinary attacks on uh, Aleppo. And what's Britain's sort of role in that? We're told that Boris Johnson wants or likes the idea of a no bombing zone, but John Kerry arrived in London and told him... No way, that's not going to work. So it, it feels like we don't really have any role or response in that. Is that your
6: sense? Uh, I think sense? the problem. I think the problem that we have. I mean, uh, it's a long, it's a long problem. It all dates back to um, you know, disastrous um, interventions in Iraq, and Afghanistan, um, and I think that that's just massively taken all the wind out of um, any Western government's sails to want to intervene, even when there's a crying need to do something. So that I, that desire to do something is still there. But then you've got all the voices sort of saying, oh, yes, but if we do this, then this will happen. And I think the problem with, um, with Syria, um, even now when we're talking about um, you know, potentially Putin using the fact that we've got the distraction of the presidential elections, um, and then, you know, after that, there's like a hiatus of three months until the new president um, is sworn in, um, a, a time when, you know, you, you can't, you're you going to find it quite hard to imagine anyone taking any really decisive action. Um, this threat of, of, um, of Russia launching, you know, with helping Assad to launch kind of, to turn Aleppo into Grozny um, during 1999-2000, that idea, that vision, that suffering... Uh, People saying, you know, the civilians there, they're going to be massacred. And yet, um, the, the the silence in terms of the Western response and in the UK, I mean, I, mo- I was really struck a couple of weeks ago, there was a debate on Syria um, in the Commons. And uh, there were probably just as many people in, um, in in one of the Westminster Hall debates talking about naming of the, uh, the, no, the, the no, Royal no, lot the yacht. No, it was the Royal Yacht. It was, it was, it was obviously
2: disgusting. the biggest issue facing Britain is there were there were an awful lot of Tory MPs who were in this Westminster Hall debate, and actually there weren't, you're right, there weren't. And it was
6: just, but then the, but the, the, the actual language that was being used yeah. was so passionate and um, convincing, and yet the problem is, to go behind, to launch a no-fly zone or a no-bombing zone, as um, the West, the UK, really pushed for um, in Libya, uh, it... Basically, because you've got Russia um, on the side of Assad, um, uh, supposedly uh, killing, uh, going after ISIS targets, but obviously actually going after Western-backed rebels as well. Um, Then if you get the West trying to impose a no-fly zone over areas where Russia is bombing, you've immediately got the risk of um, of Western planes bringing down Russian planes, which is a warlike act. And then, and then what happens? Uh, is it a question of Russia then shooting down one of your planes? Or is it in this new style of war that Richard talked about, um, a case that, that, that Putin decides, oh, hold on a second, I'm going to launch some um, offensive in the Baltics. Oh, maybe I'll launch a massive cyber, cyber attack on the city of London. That you, know, you can't predict. We can't control. We've lived for the past 40, 50, uh, since the end of the Second World War, really, um, in an in an age in the UK in particular, I mean, we've, got, we've gone through the Cold War, but where all wars since the end of the Cold War have been wars of choice, really. Um, and we've been able to um, live secure that we can still go to hospitals, we can turn on lights, electricity will come on. Um, and yet, in this era where the balance of power is shifting. Um, That certainty is no longer, we can't take it for granted.
2: The issue with Syria is, and that's happened in the debate in the Commons a couple of weeks ago, there's a great passionate, emotional case for why something must be done, but nobody quite knows what that is. What do you you think is the the something that must be done?
5: Uh, I'm not sure there is anything that could be done. Uh, This is a a situation of such staggering complexity, <coughs> um, descending in ever decreasing circles into a ghastly sort of spiral of death, um, as as Deborah says that if the potential i mean launching a, establishing a no fly zone is an act of war in itself, requires a massive military effort just to neutralize what is a very complex and capable air defense system supplied by the Russians over Syria. Just to do that is a major act of war in itself, likely to lead precisely that sort of spark before you even start having to shoot down to protect. Um, I'm tempted to say that the only way to protect the civil population of Aleppo is for the rebels somehow to, 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 to leave Aleppo to the regime. But that, of course, is, 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 uh, is a victory for, uh, for Assad and, and for the Russians. I, I, the only thing, it seems to me, possible is the only, the only way forward is for, some, is for an internationally agreed strategy,
6: mm-hmm. Re-
5: internationally agreed, regionally agreed, um, to bring pressure to bear to pull back, let the civilians out, some form of no, uh, safe, safe haven. But as soon as you get into safe havens, as we saw in Bosnia, safe havens need protecting Uh, And then you're into the business, and then you're straight back into this business of who's going to protect them. You can't have it both ways. So if you're not prepared, I mean, at the end of the day, the only way to snuff this out would be for some, a massive, massive fire blanket in the form of an overwhelming, massive military intervention. Well, that's
2: simply not going to happen. So what else can you do? Before we move on to taking questions, we can't really have a debate about foreign policy a week before US elections. Uh, without um, touching on that. Uh, I mean, can you, in the Foreign Office, you know, what, what is the state of the special relationship and, and what would it be with either President Clinton or President Trump? Well. <laughs> no laughing at that. Uh, no, 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 I, I will
3: tell you. I, I, I came into Foreign Office having heard about special relationship, having read about it, having studied about it, and then I, and I saw it in action. That Britain and the United States are actually very, very close allies on, on so many multiple layers. And, you know, General Sheriff, sure you will be much better informed to talk about that, whether in terms of, of our military cooperation, whether in terms of our intelligence sharing, whether in terms of our trying to always find a common uh, strategy and, and commonality in whatever problem we have to face. I, I, I don't know what is a polite way of saying I'm deeply troubled. Uh, and will be that if, if, if we have President Trump, because I have no confidence uh, in, in, in this man to be able to be a leader of the free world, and I don't think that he actually wants to. He, he kind of like strikes me as someone who is deeply inward-looking and isolationist, uh, ready to strike any kind of deal in order to promote what he thinks is in the interest of the United States. I don't think he has any, any feel I mean, he he would want to disband NATO and disremember NATO, whatever. He doesn't see a relationship with allies as, as as necessary or in certain as necessary at all in in certain cases. So, but what what worries me more than having Trump as a president, which is like a doomsday scenario, uh, is that he has set a precedent and a new reference point of what kind of figure you can be if you are leader of a particular country. And if you are in the United States, then even President Trump has got certain checks and balances and there are certain restraining I wouldn't say call them restraining orders, but there are some restraining factors that are going to keep you doing what you're supposed to be doing and doing it in the in the right way for the country. Elsewhere you don't have this and little trumps will be popping up all over the the world and they will say, well, it works in America, why can't it work here? But the difference being very, very striking that you don't have the the, the maturity of institutions and democracy and checks and balances. And therefore, it's going to kind of introduce this new element of having someone who actually, in all honesty, should probably never have got as far as they have. So I really hope, fingers crossed, that he's going to fail and he's going to lose, but uh, you don't know.
2: David, are you you worried about little Trumps springing up all over the place? I'm worried about words like little Trump.
4: I think this idea that we can tell Americans how to vote, we saw in this country Obama's (laughs) visit to this country was the best thing that happened to the Brexiteers. We went up in the opinion polls by 3 to 5 percent, and largely due to the fact that Boris scoffed at him, which is exactly the right way to deal with that intervention. It was a very foolish ambassador that uh, urged him to come or allowed him to come. You must not interfere with other people's elections. Whether we like it or not, America is a grounded democracy. It doesn't look happily like that at the moment, but we have to live with whatever result comes through. What it will show us if Trump wins is that there is a silent voice of America in substantial proportions that is totally and utterly fed up with the political system. And in that sense, there are similarities to Brexit. I personally uh, have views. I'm, I'm married to an American and she certainly has views. But I think it's much better for us to let them sort this one out, then we'll have to handle it. And we'll have to handle it in obviously very different ways. I think we'll be more important, uh, actually, uh, if Hillary Clinton does not win, because she is competent, you know that. We've seen her as Secretary of State. This uh, new president will come in with very little knowledge and I think that there will be a real need to help and therefore steer clear some of this stuff that we've been saying about him. You know, you you handle the person you've got in politics, and particularly in foreign politics, and sometimes it works out better than you may think. But who knows, and it's their choice, and there's nothing we can bloody well do about it, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> Richard, would you be worried about Donald Trump as Commander-in-Chief?
5: Uh, I think I'd worry about a president, uh, let me put it this way, the... Peace in in Europe, the defense of Europe since 1949, uh, has depended on the total certainty that whatever president is in the the White House, no matter what, no ifs, no buts, America will come to the aid of a NATO member if attacked. And if there's any doubt about that, that at a stroke undermines the credibility of of NATO deterrence Article 5 collective defense.
2: (laughs) Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.